me throw a couple Hebrew words at you that perhaps you haven't heard before. Um, the words are kadash, mikvah. You say that with me? Kadash, mikvah. Kadash, mikvah. New hope. Kadash, a fresh new thing, a new beginning. That's the literal interpretation for it. New, kadash. Hope. Let me read you the actual Greek or Hebrew interpretation for that. Mikvah, something waited for, a confidence, an abiding, a gathering together, a resolve of spirit. Kadash mikvah. God's given us a new hope in Jesus Christ. I don't throw Greek or Hebrew words out at you, especially as we study scripture, to make you feel that you can't properly study scripture unless you know Greek or Hebrew. It's merely done as an illumination <clears throat> factor. Excuse me. <clears throat> Had this frog in my throat today. I merely do it as an illumination factor to help bring clarity or a little more definition to Scripture. So don't feel like, man, I shouldn't really study the Scriptures in depth if I don't know Greek and Hebrew. That is not the purpose in doing that. Thank you very much, Jerry. Over the years, theories have come and gone about the origins of the universe, and so have those who originated the ideas of origins. But one thing remains constant throughout mankind's time on earth. It is consistent that mankind has a rejection of the record God left for us to the extent of scoffing at God's word. What he has revealed is constantly refuted by man who are not in relationship with him. In 1806, the French Institute of Physics held no less than 80 theories, 8-0, about the origins of man, which were in direct conflict to Scripture. Of the 80 theories that were proposed in 1806 that were held by the French Institute, none of them are held today. Theories have come and gone. Men have come and gone. But God's word remains the same. Allow me to read with you, as it comes up on the screen, you can follow along, the passage that I left you with last week when we ended where we were at in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and of crawling creatures." Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This week I had the chance to sit down with a couple college students who are far from God, long ways from God. They'd never heard that passage before. And I read it to them. 
and it brought great conviction upon their life to the point of realization that they need a redemption. It was a great conversation. You can pray for them as I meet with them again this week. God's word, when it's spoken in truth, brings conviction upon people. Individuals, though, who are in rebellion against their creator, they will deny God despite the evidence surrounding them. And that's what Romans 1 speaks to. Now, as we jump back into origins this morning, I'm going to share with you three passages that want to help set up where we're headed today. These might be very familiar to you. They're from the New Testament. And they're times when Jesus transcended man's sphere and stepped into the realm in which he could, by the power of his spoken word, perform a miracle. Now you can read along. They'll be up on the screen. The first one comes from John. They're kind of lengthy passages, but just stay with me and you'll see where we're headed on this. John chapter 2, it starts in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, ignoring her son, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but in parentheses, but the servants who had drawn the water out knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves good, the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. God with power over the elements. Now go with me to another passage from Luke. Luke chapter 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretched out your hand, and he did so. And his hand was restored, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together, discussed together what they might do to Jesus. God transcending our sphere with the power over the physical body. Okay, so we've seen the power over the elements, the power over the physical body. Now look at Matthew chapter 8. Verse 23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? 
Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? God transcending our physical sphere with power over nature, over the elements, over the physical body. So we accept that Jesus calmed the sea by the spoken word, but was it over a period of time or was it instantly? And we accept that Jesus healed people by speaking to them. Deformed limbs, blind eyes, all healed through what? Through the power of the spoken word. We accept that Jesus turned water into wine, yet with no fermentation process. No time interval in between. Matter of fact, berries weren't even added to the water. The water became wine. God's power over the elements. Instant creation in a split second, fully matured. All done instantly. Can you believe that if the God of the New Testament could instantly transform the elements, could also instantly speak to his creation and form the earth. If it says it in the New Testament and it says it in the Old Testament and Scripture speaks to Scripture and it's consistent, it must be true. Okay, so hold that thought. Now so far in Origins, we've looked at verse 1 fairly in depth and we looked at the construction of the universe. And then in verse 2 last week, we looked very clearly at the convulsion of the earth, the pre-chaos of the earth, okay? And this week, in verse 3, we're going to look at the construction of the planet. Day one, first day of creation. So we ask ourselves, like good students of the Bible, why? Why did he do it? And we came to the conclusion over the last couple weeks, it was for his own pleasure, according to Revelation and Isaiah, for his own glory, not because he was lonely. But the question remains, how did he do it? And that's where we're going to go today, by the spoken word. Now, I want you to understand, in the Christian world, there's three positions that are held fairly strongly, probably some of them held by you in this room today, a different position. And I'm going to help to bring some light to the three different positions that are held as to how God might have done what he did. Now, the first one that I want you to be familiar with, and my son told me not to use big words unless I'm going to explain what it is. So the first one is uniformitarianism. Now, you might be familiar with the word because you've seen churches around that say universalist Unitarian or the first church of Christian scientists. They hold fairly strongly to universal uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is specifically this that the same geological processes that you see today were in place in generations past. In, in, this, in this sense, they don't believe in any cataclysmic events shaping the earth. They hold very closely to evolution. That the geological processes that form the earth today are those that formed the earth in the ancient past. Now, this is a phrase you might be familiar with if you grew up in the public school system and you were in a biology class, 
The present is the key to the past. That's a summarized statement of uniformitarianism. Now here's what stands in face of that as a, uh, we might say, a contrasting example. I have just three of them for you. You might be familiar with the Karoo Formation in South Africa. Now, clearly uniformitarianism says that there were no cataclysmic events. There was no global flood, no waters around the earth. There were no events in which God called the mountains into existence or the canyons into existence. There was no event in which there was universal global flooding. Now, uniformitarianism holds very clearly to that, and that is a benchmark of evolution. In contrast to that is the Karoo Formation in South Africa, in which if you went there today, in the southwestern sphere of Africa, a very large landmass, you would find the world's largest fossil field, which has over 40,000 vertebrate animals, all killed at one moment. They didn't die over a period of time. They were buried in sludge. Now, scientists are puzzled how in the world could over 40,000 different types, I'm not saying just 40,000 animals, 40,000 different types of animals, all killed in one cataclysmic event. Now, you can ponder that one for a moment while I take you to a second one. You're familiar, perhaps, with Mount Everest as being the tallest mountain in the world. It's part of what's known as the Tibetan mountain chain or the Tibetan plateau. Now, on top of this plateau is one of the largest land masses on planet Earth. So large that it's actually four times the size of the state of Texas. It's a flat, flat surface. It lays at the bottom of these canyons. But itself is at 15,000 feet, three miles above sea level. Okay? Within that sphere, in the Tibetan mountains, is one of the largest crustacean burial sites of seashells. How do you get seashells at 15,000 feet above sea level if there was no cataclysmic event? Now, I know your mind's racing to Noah's flood, and it should, because more than likely, that's the deposit of the seashells. But uniformitarianism, you understand, refutes Scripture. It says there were no cataclysmic events. Uh, a next one I want to take you to, uh, beyond the rooftop of the world, would be, uh, well, let me read this quote to you from do uh, Dr. Kelly. Um, he was a, a, a brilliant scientist who was an atheist and became a Christian. And this is a, a quote from one of his books that he wrote. The uniformitarian assumption that millions of years of geological work extrapolating from present, slow, natural processes would be required to explain structures such as the Grand Canyon. For instance, it is called into serious question by the explosion of Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington on the 18th of May, 1980. Now let me to explain that quote to you. When you see this image of Mount St. Helens, this is the day before the explosion. For those of you who are under 25 years of age, perhaps you've only heard about this in books, um, Mount St. Helens was a dramatic demonstration of power of nature on earth. Now, the day after the explosion, let's see the next slide, that's the exact same position, I'm sorry, that's probably about a year and a half after actually. You see the devastation and how the trees have all been removed from one explosion, 400 millitons 
of explosive power, in six minutes, it cleared a surface of 400 square miles. Now, here's how that stands in the face of uniformitarianism. Scientists took the principles of uniformitarianism and applied it to Mount St. Helens, looking at the geographical data and what has been revealed since the explosion, and uniformitarianism decided that that's actually took place two million years ago. Do you understand that? That if you took the principles of uniformitarianism and applied them to Mount St. Helens explosion, a geologist would say, that didn't happen in the last 25 years. That happened two million years ago. Now, uniformitarianism is in itself speaking against itself. I hope that was clear to you. How does this relate to Scripture? How does this relate to the authority of Scripture? Look on the screen at 2 Peter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Almost as an anticipation that people would mock what God said about how he did things, he caused Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write down 2,000 years ago, just remember, there's a day coming when people are going to mock what you believe. Now, the second one you might hold to yourself or you might be very familiar with, and I hope to bring some illumination to that today, is called the day-age theory. And in the day-age theory, in the form of creation, it holds that the day, what we call yom in Hebrew, Y-O-M, the day of the creation week represents a very long age because of that passage in Scripture that says a thousand years is as a day with the Lord and a day as a thousand years. So people take that and interpret that, that, well, perhaps the six days of creation were actually 6,000 years. A modern example of that might be if you take um, before man reached the moon back in 1969 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, there was a commonly held theory by most geologists and scientists of that day that the moon was enshrouded in dust, a very, very thick layer of dust. As a matter of fact, if you read this uh, quote from a book from Dr. Littleton, you'll see what they thought in 1969. The lunar surface is exposed to direct sunlight and strong ultraviolet light and x-rays, which can destroy the surface layers of exposed rock and reduce them to dust at the rate of a few ten thousandths of an inch per year. But even this minute amount could, during the age of the moon, be sufficient to form a layer over it seven, several miles deep. Here's what's important about that. Scientists in the 1960s believed that the moon, like the earth, was probably three and a half billion years old. And so therefore, it must have not just inches of dust, but miles, maybe feet, hundreds and thousands of feet of dust. Now, Neil Armstrong, in reading these theories before he went to the moon, was very concerned about this. 
and thought that when Apollo 11 lands on the moon, they might just sink into this big morass of dust. Perhaps you remember learning about that or reading about that. I remember in the 1960s people talking about losing the spaceship into the dust. As a matter of fact, when Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, you can see in the base of his footprints that he actually sunk in about a half inch to an inch. Now scientists were baffled by this. How could that be? It has no sphere around it to protect it. So it's taking direct hit from the sun. It certainly should have much more dust than that. Creation scientists took the amount of dust that was shown on the surface of the moon and calculated it based on the amount of ultraviolet light that has hit it and determined that the moon is probably somewhere within 10 and 25,000 years old, which stands in the face of uniformitarianism and day-age theory. So we have modern examples that what God said was accurate. Very interesting. Okay, now let's go to the third one. Young Earth Creationism, which many of you might hold to, some of you may not believe in. Uh, but I'll bring some illumination to that. Young, young Earth Creationism says this, that um, creation days in the account correspond to actual 24-hour days in six days, God spoke all that is here into existence by what we call the Ten Commandments of creation. Let me read them off to you. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament. Let the waters be gathered together. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Let there be lights in the heavens. Let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let birds fly. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. Let us make man in our image. What modern science doesn't understand is that time is a creature and its servant to the Creator. Time was created by God. It was a non-existing element prior to this phrase, in the beginning. Before that, there was no time. Now myself, personally, I hold to young earth creationism. I believe that God spoke this earth into existence somewhere between the last 10 and 25,000 years from the things that I've studied. So we commonly hear the questions asked, well, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I would say the chicken came first because I believe that God spoke everything mature. He didn't form an embryo when he formed Adam. He didn't form a boy. It says God created a man, fully developed. He didn't give us half of our radioactive field or half of our nuclear energy or half of the magnetism, he gave a fully developed planet with fully developed vegetation. And it is a mystery to the scientist, and it should be. God told us what he wanted us to know. That's it. That's all we get to know. It doesn't mean we stop exploring. So, with all that in mind, let's move forward into the first day of creation. In last week, we looked at Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Ruach of God. The Spirit of God. Ruach means the wind or the Spirit or the breath of God. Literally, moving over the surface of the earth. Coexistent with God. This is the very thought in which the early church, your predecessors, understood that there was more than just God the Father, but there was God the Spirit. 
This is an important element to the New Testament church, this passage in the first part of Exodus. The Spirit is the one who tends and oversees and broods and comforts. So when Jesus said to his followers, I am sending a comforter to you, I go to the Father, so he will send one who broods over you, they understood what that meant. The Spirit of God who was present in Genesis, the one who broods over creation, we, his creation, he will brood over us and tend to us. Okay, in Job 33.4, this was illuminated for us. The Ruach, the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Psalms 33.6, the heavens were made and all their host by the Ruach of his mouth, by the breath of his mouth. The Spirit of God tending over the earth. This shapeless, uninhabited, lifeless, dark gulf in a ball of matter and mass. And Genesis says that the Spirit was hovering over it. Psalms 104.5 says this, He established the earth upon its foundations. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. Water over the entire surface of the earth. Primordial oceans. I don't know where I heard this. Don't quote me on this. I'm just going to tell you one thing that I heard sometime in the last 20 years from some scientist, and I don't know if he could authenticate it. He's done a calculation and believes that if the polar ice caps melted, that there's enough water contained within the polar ice caps and the water that is on the planet right now that if it completely melted and went to liquid, it would stand about 17 feet above the top of Mount Everest. Can't back that up. It's just one thing that I remember that popped out in my mind. Now God says that the earth was covered completely with water. Is this before he called the mountains into existence? It appears to be. But there was a time when God flooded the entire earth through the judgment of the people who lived at the time of Noah. And if you go to the Old Testament, it says that the water stood approximately three meters above the tallest mountain, 15 feet above the top of Mount Everest. Very interesting. So we start out with the emptiest of empties, void of all life, totally uninhabited. The materials there, time, space, and matter, and God has this ball of elements. And then in the first day, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, he says, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God willed it. The will of God was followed in every instance by an immediate result, immediate reaction. This, I'd love to read commentaries and things from the early 1800s and 1700s. Let me read you this quote from a, a man who is a theologian who wrote about Genesis 1-3. The dense accumulation of fogs and vapors which enveloped the chaos had covered the globe with a settled gloom. By the command of God, light was rendered visible. The thick, murky clouds were dispersed and light diffused over the expanse of the waters. It was written in 1880. The one who dwells in inapproachable light spoke light into existence. Have you ever read that before? That God dwells in inapproachable light? 
light that no man can set his eye upon? You can see that in 1 Timothy. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The Shekinah glory. That's what we're talking about. The light of God appearing over the surface of the earth. And he spoke some form of light into existence. Remember, this is well before the sun was created. Just light, the light of God. The same light that appeared in the Old Testament over the land of Egypt. The same light that was in the pillar of fire. The same light that John wrote about in John 1.1 and he was the light of men. This is the light of God. He just spoke it into existence. John 1, 4, 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. This is the moment at which the rotation of the earth begins. He's separating light from darkness, because the planet is beginning to spin. That's the verse that reveals the rotation. Half light, half dark. Isaiah 45, 7 says, God is the one forming light and creating darkness. So verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Called the light day. What's the first thing you do if you're a parent and you go to a delivery room and your wife gives birth to a baby after you count all the toes and you count all the fingers, what do you do? The doctor invariably turns to you and says, what are you going to name her? What are you going to name him? God didn't need to name the day but he called the light day because he's demonstrating that he has the authority to do that. Do you ever stop and think about that? You have the authority to name your children. Now, they can go to the court system when they're 18 and change their name. But God says, I'm the one who's in charge. I have the authority, and I'm calling this thing, oh, I don't know, day? In Hebrew, the word day, it means warmth and heat, things that we would like to have right now in February here in Michigan, okay? Third, the thing that pops out to me out of that word day, meaning a day as the warm hours, whether literal from one sunrise to sunset or from one sunset to the next day. That's an oriental way of determining a 24-hour period. We go from morning to night. They actually go from nighttime sunset to the following sunset the next day. What's important about that? This is where we get the theory or the belief, the structure, that God actually did this in 24 hours. The word yom, Y-O-M. When it's used in this setting, it means a natural solar day. And there's no way to misinterpret that. Whenever it's used, the word day, with a number. Let's go back to that uh, verse, Adam. Go back to Genesis chapter 5, uh, verse 5. And there was one morning, one day, when the number one 
or the number two or the number three is used next to the word yom, it means literally 24 hours. There's no way to draw the conclusion that it was a thousand years. It means one day, a 24-hour day. So why did God do this in six days? Why did God not do it in six seconds or six minutes? He was setting a pattern for us. Remember in Exodus chapter 20 when God said, Six days shall you labor and one day shall you rest. For in six days the Lord God created the earth and all that was in it. He said, here's my pattern for you. I'm going to work for six days. And on the seventh day, you do what? Yeah. We're not very good at that, are we? I'm not either. Are we standing in defiance of God when we do that? Yeah. Seventh day, you rest. Take this thought home with you this week. In Romans chapter 7, Paul wrote about this constant mental battle he was doing. He said, the good that I would do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, I do do. And I don't want to do them. And I'm thinking, Paul, you're schizophrenic. You're driving me crazy. But that's exactly what I feel. And I need the study of things like this in the book of Genesis to realign me. Like that printer cartridge that we spoke about in communion. To bring focus back in again about who's in control and who I am in relationship to him. Take that thought home with you this week. The reason that we do this work and study these things is to do battle against that intellectual rebellion that we experience to bring focus and center back to us so that we can really walk around and say, I have a Kadash Mikvah. I have a new hope. And I'm aligned. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be the source of our Kadash Mikvah. That we not lean into the things of men and the things of the world, the materialistic desires that we, we freely confess we all have. And sometimes they bring us hope and they bring us laughter for a short period of time, but they're not long-lasting. Your word is, your word remains forever. God, we thank you for the revelation that you give us through the work of your spirit. We desire to be more bold on your behalf, and you said that we must study to be approved, to not be workmen that are not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. Cause us to have that desire, Father, to really want to understand your word and what you are showing us. God, we ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Before I let you go this week, if you would just remember that the offering boxes are in the back of the church on your way out, and have an excellent week. See ya.